As you may have noticed with last week's episode, if cancel culture exists, it definitely doesn't live in the fashion industry. Many fashion brands and or their founders have gotten away with doing problematic things and are still thriving. As I mentioned in the YouTube video I did on why I think celebrities still support problematic brands, I genuinely think that a lot of non-celebrity shoppers or people who would like to purchase from these high-end designer brands just have no clue as to what happened with these brands. Fashion news is pretty niche and will oftentimes make it to publications that feature pop culture, but it rarely makes major news. Things are sure to go viral on social media. However, the true impact will be seen in the future sales of the company. Strings can definitely be pulled to revive a designer or brand after facing serious backlash. In this episode, we'll see how that happened. Welcome to Most Fashionable Crime, a fashion-related true crime podcast hosted by me, Taryn. Each season has a theme, and the theme for this season is house. To stay on trend, make sure that you're signed up for the newsletter, subscribe to the YouTube channel, and following the podcast on Twitter at Most Fashionable, and on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Most Fashionable Crime. If you would like to continue the discussion, there is a Facebook group and a Reddit community, which are both linked in the notes. Thank you so much to the supporters of this podcast. I appreciate you all so much. If you like to support, there's a link in the notes. You can also support Most Fashionable Crime for free by sharing this podcast, leaving it a five-star rating and a review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, subscribing to the podcast wherever you listen, subscribing to the YouTube channel, and just listening and engaging on social media. While you're listening right now, share that you are to your Instagram or Facebook story. This is the last episode of this season, and I am going to be restructuring this schedule of the podcast, so stay tuned for an update about that. On the southern tip of the Iberian Peninsula lies one of the 14 British overseas territories. Gibraltar has been a staple of the British Royal Navy since the 18th century, and in that sense, it is commonly known as the Rock. The Rock of Gibraltar is a limestone rock that sits 426 meters out of the sea and is also home to the only population of wild monkeys in Europe, the Barbary macaque. Despite Gibraltar being right below Spain and just across from Morocco, it is the British territory. The Strait of Gibraltar is the only entrance to the Mediterranean Sea from the Atlantic Ocean, so it's clear as to why Spain and the United Kingdom have had a history of trying to beat each other out to lay claim to Gibraltar. But ultimately, the UK has won. The United Kingdom also brought the family of one of the best fashion designers of the 21st century further into the fold. On November 28, 1960, John Charles Galliano was born in Gibraltar. He was born to a Spanish woman named Anita who taught flamenco and a Gibraltarian father of Italian descent named Juan who worked as a plumber. His early years were spent in Gibraltar with his older sister Rose Marie and his younger sister Maria Immaculata. The name John Charles stuck out to me, but I learned this was because he changed his name from Juan Carlos Antonio Galliano Guillen. I'm not sure if he changed it legally. When Galliano was six years old, the Galliano family left Gibraltar for England and made a couple of working class neighborhoods in South London home, the neighborhoods being Streatham and Dulwich before settling in Broccoli. Their father moved the family to London so his children could receive a better education and better job opportunities for himself. Galliano's father ran his own plumbing business while his mother worked as a lunch lady in a local school's cafeteria. Anita, Galliano's mother, made sure to raise her children in the same devout Catholic upbringing she herself was raised in. Galliano attended St. Anthony's School for his early education and went on to attend and graduate from Wilson School. 
Galliano was not the best student, but he drew very well and he dressed the best according to him and his mother's standards. He was also shy and that along with him being new to London and dressing in pressed and starched clothes subjected him to bullying. His mother believed in looking your best, so even on Sundays while running errands, she had her children dressed in their finest clothes. His mother took a lot of pride in her Spanish heritage and upbringing, and that rubbed off on Galliano. He spoke Spanish at home with his parents, and I pulled this quote from him from an article by The Telegraph, where he is talking about how he was different from his classmates growing up in London. Other boys' houses always seem to smell of dogs and musty carpets, whereas ours smelled of garlic and clean laundry and fresh flowers. Galliano always knew he was different, and one moment when he truly knew this was when he showed up to his first communion wearing a white suit, gold chains, ribbons, and rosary beads, while the other boys at school just had on their typical standard uniforms. When the time came for Galliano to decide what he would do after school, he was initially drawn to study languages but chose to study fashion instead. The article from The Telegraph appears to be the most accurate when it comes to detailing his higher educational pursuits. According to the article, he enrolled in a design and textile program at City and East London College, which today is City and Islington College following a merger. He must have done a great job because at the end of his second year of college, he was advised by his instructors to go to St. Martin's School of Art, which you may have guessed if you listened to previous episodes or are familiar with Fashion Design School, is now Central St. Martin's following a merger. In a profile I read on Galliano for BBC News, when Galliano decided he was going to pursue studies in fashion, he originally wanted to pursue a career in illustration and move to New York City but was convinced to turn his illustrations into actual creations during his last year of school. In 1984, he graduated from CSM with a first-class honors degree in fashion design. The collection he created for his graduation show was titled Les Incroyables, and it was inspired by the French Revolution. The show was a hit, and a London boutique called Browns purchased the entire collection, and Diana Ross even bought a coat from it. This must have been a whirlwind for the boy who originally thought he would study foreign languages and then thought he would become a fashion illustrator. His journey to becoming a fashion designer, a successful one on the first try of that is pretty incredible. After this break, I will tell you about the moves Galliano made after his successful graduation show. After the success of Les Incroyables, Galliano didn't go to work for a fashion house. He started his own label, which is a pretty bold move, especially for someone who was headed in a completely different direction just a little while before this. According to Wikipedia, he launched his label after graduating with a stylist by the name of Amanda Harlick and a milliner named Stephen Jones. However, after reading a couple of articles, it sounds like Jones made hats for Galliano's label, but he wasn't employed by the label. His collections continued to reference history. He didn't leave for Paris or another fashion city. He remained in London where he rented a studio space. Galliano didn't come for money, so he did require a financial backer to put out the types of designs he wanted to. And at the beginning, it was Johan Brunn. Then once the agreement ended, a Danish entrepreneur, old Peter Bertelsen, became the new financial backer. I couldn't find a lot of information as to what was going on with Galliano and his namesake label, but I did read an article from 1986 that appeared to have foreshadowed one of his obstacles. The subheading reads, at 25, John Galliano has already made his mark on the fashion scene. Now, suggests Sarah Mower, he needs time out of the limelight to develop his unusual talent. In 1987, he did win British Designer of the Year, and the following year in 1988, his agreement with Bertelsen came to an end. 
By 1990, Galliano was bankrupt. He left for Paris to find a new backer for his label. The backing came from a Moroccan-born designer in Paris named Begal Amour. And now Galliano was designing out of Paris and showing for Paris Fashion Week. This agreement too came to an end in 1993. I'm not sure why the agreements kept coming to an end, but I'm assuming the label was not bringing in enough money to keep people invested. I mentioned Anna Winter in previous episodes, but I don't believe I've mentioned Andre Leon Talley. Andre Leon Talley was an American fashion journalist, stylist, creative director, editor, and overall curator of fashion from Durham, North Carolina. I will talk more about him on the YouTube channel this week, but he played a pivotal role in turning Galliano's career around at this point. By 1994, Galliano was sleeping on the floor of a friend's apartment in Paris when Andre Leon Talley caught word that the designer would not be shown a new collection due to not having a financial backer. Tally had met Galliano in passing and they weren't particularly close, but Tally was a lover of both fashion and history and Galliano's designs intersected both of those subjects effortlessly. Tally got to work to try to revive this young designer's career. Tally was able to procure a backer, John Bolt, for the designer and with this came $50,000 to put out a show. Tally also secured a location for the show for free. It was the home or really the mansion of Sal Schlumberger that was empty following her move. Models including Naomi Campbell, Kate Moss, and Christy Turlington walked for free. This is mentioned in his last memoir, The Chiffon Trenches, and detailed in the cut interview linked in the notes. I'm also almost 100% sure that it was Tally who introduced Galliano to Anna Wintour or forged a relationship between them. Keep Anna Wintour in mind because we'll circle back to her later. Tally leading the way for this revival with the help of his friend Wintour and others to help create this moment for Galliano led to doors being opened for the designer. The days of worrying about financial backing were over for Galliano by July of 1995. He was able to secure an appointment by the luxury conglomerate LVMH. For those who might be unfamiliar, LVMH is an acronym for Moet Hennessy Louis Vuitton. In addition to the obvious brands underneath them, there is also Fenty Beauty, Off-White, Tiffany & Co., Birkenstock, and Loewe, or just a few more brands living in the house of LVMH. Bernard Ono, the CEO of LVMH, appointed John Galliano as the designer of the French fashion house Givenchy. Galliano presented his first couture show for Givenchy in January of 1996. This was a huge turnover for the designer, and he received a lot of praise for this collection. By 1996, LVMH had moved Galliano over to head the design team at Dior. The ready-to-wear collections and the haute couture collections he designed during his tenure at Dior are shared all over social media to this day. The Met Gala just occurred and there are many people hoping that some archive designs would have made the red carpet or been referenced since, as I mentioned, Galliano appreciated a good historical reference in his designs and the styling of his runway shows. His talent as a designer is undeniable and to my knowledge, he was able to be viewed publicly only as an incredible designer. He won the award for British Designer of the Year again in 1994, 1995, and 1997. In 1997, he shared the award with fellow designer Lee Alexander McQueen, who succeeded his position at Givenchy. Things appear to have been smooth sailing up until 2011. On February 25, 2011, Galliano was suspended from his role at Dior by LVMH after allegedly going on a racist and anti-Semitic rant in a bistro in Paris called La Pearl just before Paris Fashion Week of that year. 
On that same day, a video was released by The Sun, a British newspaper, of Galliano from December of 2010, so just a couple of months prior to his suspension from Dior. In this video, he's speaking to a group of Italian women and he tells them that he loves Hitler and that people like them would have been dead and their ancestors would have been gassed. He's on video saying these evil and nasty things. In the incident in February, Galliano allegedly told a couple of people that they were a f***ing ugly Jewish and a f***ing Asian bastard. Again, these are vile things to say to anyone under any circumstance. According to an article by The Guardian, there was another person that he made similar comments to, allegedly, in October of 2010. I read in an article on BBC News that the area this bistro is located in is associated with the Jewish community historically. What puzzled me, a Black American, was that Galliano was arrested for this. I learned that making anti-Semitic remarks is illegal in France, and if convicted of the crime, you can face up to six months in prison. On March 1st, procedures have begun to formally dismiss Galliano from Dior. Galliano and his legal team denied the allegations. I'm assuming about the alleged February incident since there is a video of the December one. They also launched a defamation case against the couple. The next day, on March 2nd, 2011, it was made clear that Galliano would have to go to trial and the trial began on June 22nd of that year. On September 8th, Galliano was found guilty of making anti-Semitic remarks and fined 6,000 euros. He was also ordered to pay 16,500 euros to the three complainants and five anti-racism groups for their court fees. Galliano, in an interview with Charlie Rose, stated that these comments were made while he was drunk and that he was a blackout drinker and didn't remember making these comments at all, let alone the event even occurring. During the trial, his lawyers added that he was dealing with stress from work. Personally, I just don't believe that stress from work and being a heavy drinker causes you to say these types of things. He also mentioned in the interview that he went to a rehabilitation center in Arizona. Galliano was not down for long. It was only two years before Galliano received an invitation from Oscar de la Renta for a temporary residency at the Oscar de la Renta Design Studio to assist in preparing for the upcoming show for the fall 2013 New York Fashion Week. This arrangement was created by none other than Anna Wintour. Allegedly, there was also an idea by Wintour for Galliano to instruct at Parsons School of Design, but it didn't happen due to protests. I also believe that it was through Anna Wintour that Galliano was able to land a spot at Maison Margiela. In 2014, it was announced that he was appointed creative director of the design house. To cement his comeback, a few weeks after the appointment was announced, he presented Wintour with the award for outstanding achievement at the British Fashion Awards. To accept the award, Wintour wore Galliano's first design with his new house. Galliano is still at Maison Margiela today. The Anti-Defamation League, an international Jewish organization, acknowledged Galliano's efforts to atone for his remarks and crimes. He received public support from Rabbi Barry Marcus of the Central Synagogue in London. Marcus sat in the front row of his first show with Margella in 2014, and in 2015, they both spoke at an event that was a part of a Jewish educational project. Galliano spoke about his alcohol abuse and acknowledged his actions, while Marcus spoke about forgiveness. Galliano being one of the favorite designers of high ups in the fashion industry absolutely played a role in his comeback. If he didn't have the skills or notoriety, I think a lot of people would have just let him fall completely off. The fashion industry may have forgiven him, but a lot of people have not. 
Thank you so much for another season of Most Fashionable Crime. I will be back with an announcement later on the restructuring of the podcast, but you can expect bonus episodes in the meantime. Thank you so much for listening to Most Fashionable Crime. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to sign up for the newsletter so you don't miss the next season's announcement. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast, download episodes, and leave a five-star rating and or a review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. All of my sources are linked in the notes. In case you're wondering, this podcast was written, recorded, produced, and edited by me, Taryn. All of the music you heard in this episode is from Epidemic Sound. 